family was out in the Rocky Mountain snow skiing. We every year gather all our kids and grandkids together and we spend a, a week skiing. And the last day we were snow skiing was one of the most bizarre days of skiing I've ever experienced. It was raining so hard that when I sat on the chairlifts, I was sitting in puddles of water. And right away, I made a fascinating discovery that my 15-year-old ski pants were no longer waterproof. Uh, but as you begin to move up the chairlift to higher elevations, the rain turned to sleet, then it turned to snow, and then uh, near the top, as soon as you got above about 10,5, 10,000 feet, 500, man, it was a blizzard. I took a picture on a chairlift. Look at this. It doesn't really do justice to the dramatic change in the weather. But that's what skiing in the Rocky Mountains in the spring is like. The weather changes all the time. I say this because Easter ushers in the greatest change in human history. Now, it's not just a weather thing, um, although the weather was certainly impacted for three hours on Friday. It's a cosmic thing. The miracle of all miracles. Uh, the greatest event, as I just said, in human history. So today, what I would like us to do together is to think about the resurrection, explore the resurrection, and I want to address three questions. First of all, what is it? And then second, why should we believe it? And then third, how does it apply to our lives? So I'm going to talk about the what, the why, and the how, and I'm going to personalize it uh, along the way because this day is so deeply significant to me as a man. So there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I want to begin our, our brief discussion of the what of the resurrection, what is it, by looking at a slice of the resurrection that emerges near the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. So let's go to Matthew chapter 28. We'll put it up here on the screens. I've got to find it in my Bible. And we will begin reading in Matthew 28 and verse 5. Then the angel said to the women, now the women were the first to the tomb. The angel is speaking. He's addressing these women at the tomb. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. That's Good Friday. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will now notice, there you will see him. Now I have told you, divine testimony, the testimony of an angel, that the tomb is no longer uh, occupied, it is now empty because Jesus is physically raised from the dead. Now all other major religions of the world, and even modern secularism today, tell us that we must do this or we must do that, um, either to please God or to find personal significance in a world without God. 
But Christianity says, time out, no way. That's impossible. We can't work our way to God. I mean, the human heart is too self-absorbed. It's too morally weak. The Bible says too sinful. So God came to us and became a man, the man Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross in our place for our sins. And then three days later, we're to what Matthew just is describing. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, from the dead. And over a period of days and weeks, Jesus appeared to a vast array of people, large groups, small groups, individuals, in a, in a brand new, previously unheard of, never experienced resurrection body that was both material and immaterial at the same time. Which enabled Jesus to be touched, to eat, to be seen, uh, to have conversations with, and at the same time, it enabled him to walk through walls, uh, to appear and disappear at, at will. Jesus has risen from the dead, and now today this means that Jesus Christ is just on the other side of sight. Now, there's a little more to the resurrection before I move on from the what to the why. And that is, what is the resurrection about? What, what's the point of the resurrection? What was the resurrection accomplishing? And the answer is, it's proof. The resurrection validates, proves that Jesus' repeated claim to be God is in fact true. But it also proves that the payment Jesus Christ made when he died on the cross for our sins, for all who will believe, has been paid in full. That payment has been paid in full. It has satisfied a holy God. The resurrection proves Christ's deity. The resurrection proves that Jesus' payment has been made in full. Now that's just a little of what the resurrection is. I want to move to the second question, the, uh, this why question. But before I transition, let me just personalize this because this is a, was a life-changing moment for me. When I was in college, I didn't necessarily realize it at the time, uh, but I was becoming an alcoholic just like my alcoholic father. It was just a matter of time. But my life completely, I mean totally changed when God opened my eyes my sophomore year uh, to see that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, weren't stories of religious fiction, but truth. By truth, I mean historical reality. And I am here today because Easter changed my life. The risen, resurrected Jesus Christ changed my life. Has he changed yours? Yeah, amen. So why 
Why did I believe it was true? Why should any of us believe it's true? What is the evidence that Christianity offers? Well, what I want to do, instead of looking at the testimony in the Gospels, is I want to go to a court case, a major first century court case that occurred, rather, 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. It involves the Apostle Paul. Paul, a brilliant, zealous Jew, had converted to Christianity. And Paul was in all sorts of trouble. As a matter of fact, when we come to the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is the history of the first half of the first centuries, early church escapades, episodes. Acts is a history book just like the Gospels. And when we come near to the end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, that's where we're going to look at uh, this morning, Paul has already had a couple of court cases, a couple of trials, but now he's in deep weeds because he's facing the highest criminal court in Israel. I mean, the king of Israel, King Agrippa, a devout Jew is there because Israel at that time was Roman-occupied territory. The Roman governor, Festus, who was a secularist, was also there. As a matter of fact, as really a matter of history, I should say, uh, secular history tells us that both Agrippa and Festus reigned during this middle first century period. But what I want you to see as we, go to come, as we come to Acts chapter 26 is that the defense Paul makes, this brilliant former zealous Jew, the defense he makes rests exclusively on the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 6 and verse 6. I mean, Acts chapter 26 and verse 6. It's hard to speak for a living. And Paul is speaking and he says in the middle of this court case, and now it is because of my hope, I'll come back to that word, and what God has promised our ancestors that I am in trial today. King Agrippa, now he's speaking to the Jewish king, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Just a few years ago here in the United States, a a well-known skeptic of Christianity asked the question, how could any thoughtful person expect my physicist daughter to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. To which uh, a a, a well-known Duke University professor responded, it all depends on how much imagination she has. Imagination. And then he added, the Bible can't be blamed if modern People live by notions too limited to hear the teaching of the Bible. So what is imagination? Imagination is imaging what you can't see. Einstein said it's more important than knowledge. 
You cannot know God, enjoy God, without imagination. Because when your imagination is open, your heart is open and your mind is open. So in verse 8, now we're back to our text. In verse 8, when Paul asks the rhetorical question, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul is saying to the entire court, where in the world is your imagination? Where did you leave it? Where did you lose it? Now the trial continues. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Paul is continuing to testify, to speak. And Paul says, but God has helped me this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said in the Old Testament would happen. That the Messiah, now let me stop here for a second. He's going to say the Messiah would rise from the dead. The Messiah is a key, Messiah is a key Old Testament term and concept. It literally means anointed one. It's a term for the coming king of kings, the Lord. Messiah in the Old Testament is a term uh, for deity. And here Paul borrows that Old Testament term and attaches it to Jesus, saying Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Old uh, appointed anointed one and so Paul says that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles so here Paul tells us that when he's asking this question about why should we consider it incredible that God raises people from the dead he's specifically talking about Jesus and Jesus bodily resurrection and what he tells us what, what he's saying to all the Jews in the court is you guys should not find this incredible because it was prophesied in the Old Testament now it continues and, and here it, it gets interesting and I, I read this and I think you know God really does have a sense of humor so let's pick it up in verse 24. At this point, Festus, now Festus is the Roman governor, interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. I, I imagine Paul said this with a smile on his face. What I am saying is true. Now note the word true and reasonable. The king, he's referring to Agrippa, is familiar with this thing, these things, and I can speak freely or boldly to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it is not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets, the Old Testament prophets? And then Paul adds, I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Now, I want to wrestle with this question. How does this interaction here, how does this court scene or a, a slice of this court scene help us understand the reality of the resurrection, help us understand that the resurrection is two? And I want to suggest there's two things here. First of all, Paul is staking his life on the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, this is the highest court criminal court, I should say, in Israel. And no one 
is going to stand before a court. No one is going to risk their life in general for something they knew all along was a lie. Paul wouldn't do that. Here he's staking his life on its truth. He uses the word true. The second evidence is that Paul's enemies here, really the entire court, they don't deny it. I mean, this is 25 years after the resurrection happened. But apparently the resurrection was such a historically profound event that it was still being talked about a quarter of a century uh, later. So Paul says to Agrippa, the Jewish king, you know about this, you're familiar uh, with it, you know it wasn't done in a corner. In other words, Paul is saying to Agrippa, you know it happened. Now what's so very interesting is neither Festus nor Agrippa here deny it. Instead, Festus attacks Paul's character. Agrippa gets defensive. You think you're going to persuade me? Both are saying to Paul, in effect, don't bother me with the facts, the history. But neither say It didn't happen. And Festus Agrippa just happened to be two of the most sophisticated and staunchest opponents of Christianity. And they don't deny it. You see, you can't get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ if you hold to a self-imposed bias that God doesn't exist, that miracles don't exist, there's no imagination. But this is exactly what we bump into all over today, where people in effect say, you know, never mind that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the uh, best attested facts in ancient history you know don't bother me with that because my worldview won't allow me to believe it and then we need to ask the question well why is your worldview more privileged than the early first century church who was there now yes these people were pre-scientific but they were not, they were not gullible. Both Jews and Romans had no categories whatsoever for someone to bodily rise from the dead in the middle of history. No one in the first century believed that was possible. There was no one looking, waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. And so when we come to these issues of history, we need to be careful of our own personal worldview arrogance. Or you could call it cultural arrogance. And I wonder today, could it be the issue isn't really the facts, it isn't the history, but like Festus and Agrippa, uh, we attack and we get defensive because our imagination is closed? 
And so our hearts are closed and our, our, our minds are closed, all because the truth makes us uncomfortable. Uh, don't let that happen to you. Now, brings me to my final third question. We're going to spend a fair amount of time on this. And, and after we talk about the what and we talk about the why, uh, we need to wrestle with, okay, what difference does this make? Or uh, how do we apply this to our lives? Uh, the fact that Jesus is alive. Jesus is here. Jesus knows every hair on your head. Jesus knows your yesterday and he knows your tomorrow. Jesus superintends everything in the universe. How do we apply that? Well, here I'm going to speak personally. First of all, it means that Jesus is the king, not you, not me. This is what Paul is getting at in verse 23 of Acts chapter 26 when he calls Jesus the Messiah. He's saying Jesus is the king. Now years ago, I spent all summer long, every summer, my first three years of high school at a prep school military academy. My mother, who loved me dearly, said, Rob, it's my sanity or you go to Culver Military Academy to get shaped up. So I went. And if I'm perfectly honest with you, the, the first half of the first summer was just a huge struggle for me. I really, at that point in my life, struggled with authority. And my mom, my mom understood that because I struggled with her authority. I really struggled while I was at Culver with upperclassmen screaming in my face, with people telling me that my bed had to be made in a certain way with all this precision, and I had to use a ruler every time I made my bed. I struggled with all sorts of the rules and regulations, but gradually, as, a, as uh, June gave way to July, uh, my view of authority, the authority I was under at Culver began to change and I began to really enjoy it and the last two and a half years were magical. Now years later here I am and I want to say to you this Easter 2018 I am so glad that I don't have to be the king of my life. I am so thankful that Jesus Christ is my king. It's the greatest joy in my life. You see, the resurrection, if it means anything, it means that Jesus Christ now reigns in love and compassion, goodness and grace over every square inch of the universe, over every square inch of my life. Now, we all bow our knee to something or to some things, someone or some things. Maybe it's to our smarts, our, our, our competence, our, our performance, or the approval of our friends or co-workers, or, or our money, or um, whatever. But I want to say to you this morning, at the age of 19, just a couple years after getting this authority battle kind of 
worked out. I bowed my knee to Jesus Christ. And there's been no looking back. Is Jesus your king? I don't mean theoretically or abstractly. I mean functionally. Is he your king today? So what does that mean for me? Well, it means three things. It means, first of all, I submit to the authority of Christ. I submit to Christ's authority in his word. The Bible matters to me. Uh, The second thing it means is I rest in his sovereignty in good times and bad times. And and the third means is I experience his presence. I enjoy his presence. I, I seek his presence in prayer. Keeping my eyes and ears open to how God is speaking to me through other people, different situations. The fact that Jesus is my king enables me to go to sleep at night and it fills me with joy during the day. Do you know him as your king? The second application is that the resurrection fills life with hope. It has filled me with hope and as a result of this hope, it's filled, it fills life with meaning and significance and identity. So let's go back to verse 6. Look at verse 6. Let's put it up on the screen. And I want you to see this connection here. And Paul says, it's because of my hope and what God has promised. What did God promise in the Old Testament? Well, God promised Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would die, the Son would suffer, and then in a variety of different Psalms that he would be raised from the dead. So Paul roots his hope here in verse 6 on the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified Good Friday and raised from the dead Easter. Now imagine, let me illustrate the potency of hope. Imagine there are two women, the same age, same education, same background, same temperament, and you hire them And you say to each, your job is to take uh, part A and put it into slot B and then hand it off to the next person. And you will do that eight hours a day, five days a week. And you say to the first woman, you will be paid $30,000 a year. But you say to the second woman, you're going to be paid $30 million a year. And so a couple weeks go by, just a couple of weeks, and and the first woman is heard complaining. Oh, this job is so boring, it's so tedious, I I just can't do this, I'm not sure I can make it. You know, the conditions, the people, all of that. Uh, But the second woman is like at a rock concert every day. I mean, she's singing, she's walking on cloud nine, she's hugging people, she's talking all the time about how wonderful this company is, and and she just loves it. Now, both have the same breaks, both work in the same environment, but what's the difference? The difference is their expectation of the future. That's what the Bible calls hope. And and the point of the illustration isn't that life is all about money or that money solves our problems because it, it doesn't. The point is that what we believe about the future controls how we experience the present. Easter means there is hope. 
Jesus has overcome sin. He's broken the power of sin, death, and Satan. History is moving someplace. The moment I uh, believe in Christ, I know that God is working all things together for good in my life, no matter what happens. And you know there's a lot that's happened to me over the years. It means, as I said, Jesus knows every hair on my head, that Jesus has my back, that Jesus is before me, behind me, above me, and beneath me. It means that my life will never be for a second meaningless. Do you know this hope? Does it leak? Does it shine through you? Third, uh, the resurrection means justice matters. It matters. Now today, when, if you go to work and start talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ tomorrow, you know, people are just going to walk right by you and say thanks, but no thanks. So today, the resurrection of Jesus is meant with widespread skepticism. But even if we can't believe it's true, we should believe it's true. Why? Because we care about justice. We care about alleviating poverty, hunger, and disease. We care about bringing an end to racism and um, sexual harassment and school shootings and political corruption. Years ago, uh, uh, a couple years after the fall of the Iron Curtain, I was in the country of Romania and I was speaking and I got robbed by a man carrying a machine gun. He was a Romanian soldier. He was dressed in full uniform. And what do you do when a guy has a machine gun and he's robbing you? You give him some money. Now, most of us would say it's wrong for someone to ever rob somebody. But at the same time, the crazy thing is in the world in which we live, we also say the material world was caused by an accident. And ultimately, there's no meaning. So on the one hand, it bothers us that more people don't care about justice. It bothers us that there's so much injustice. But on the other hand, our secular view, our secular worldview, undermines the very motivation in our culture to care for people. So life is just about me. I mean, what difference does it make? Why should I sacrifice myself for others? I mean, take the subject of racism. Someone says, I believe racism is wrong. And you say, well, you must believe in God then. No, I don't believe in God, but I believe racism is wrong. And you say, okay, now, now wait a minute. If God doesn't exist, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we are all products of evolution. And one of the tenets of evolution is that the strong overpowers the weak. How can you say racism is wrong if you don't believe in God? My point is, it's the existence of God demonstrated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that provides the moral basis for culture, the moral basis for your life. It provides the moral basis for justice, for caring about people. 
If I had time, I'd show you a quote from the British theologian N.T. Wright on this. It's just beautiful. But I want to go on to my last point. And uh, so how does this apply? Well, first of all, it means uh, there is a king. It means there is hope. It means there is justice. And finally, it means there is forgiveness. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means there's forgiveness for you and me. Now, I don't know about you, but boy, do I need forgiveness. A brand new employee was working late one night and he was on his way out and he saw the CEO who he had just met uh, standing in front of a paper shredder holding a piece of paper. And the CEO said to him, hey, um, I I could use your help. This is a sensitive document. My secretary is gone. I wonder if you could make this thing work for me. Typical CEO. So the young guy uh, said, sure. He turned the machine on, he inserted the piece of paper, and he pressed start, and the CEO turned to him, excellent. And he he said, excellent, all I need is one copy. (laughs) Isn't that how we are with God? God intends one thing, We assume other things, and so we do our own thing. The Bible has a word for that, and it's the word sin. And so Jesus, Good Friday, came to die for our sin, and the resurrection is proof of payment. It's proof that there is forgiveness, and so I wonder as I conclude, do you know this Jesus? Have you received him? He is alive. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you have never done so, I want to invite you to receive Jesus now. Come to him. Trust him as your Messiah, your Savior, and your King. Let's pray. So if God is speaking to you in this moment and, and you know um, in your heart that you haven't been walking with Jesus, that you're not there, and God is uh, tugging at you, I want to invite you to come to Jesus now and say yes to him. Uh, say to Jesus in the quietness of this moment, I have turned away. I have turned my back on you. I have sinned. I confess that. I thank you that you died on the cross for my sin. I thank you that you were raised from the dead to validate the offer of forgiveness. And so right now, right in this moment, I want to say yes, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. And Father, for all of us who have already done that, we praise you and thank you for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob, for that.